chapter 6 as we study this morning verses 1 to 8 and our theme today is judgment promised grace provided judgment promised grace provided how did we get to where we are today how did it come to this it's a question often asked by journalists in our media or by uh, historians analyzing the, the big events of the past how one thing led to another right up to the present day. Whether it's the outbreak of a war or a pandemic, this is often the question that people want answered and people go back and think things through to figure it out. How did it come to this? As we read and study the book of Genesis, we need to remind ourselves that Moses, who wrote the book, uh, he originally wrote it for the Israelites after they had been rescued out of Egypt And we're on their way to the promised land. That was, of course, many hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years after the events of Genesis that the book was written. And the Israelites needed to learn about their history. They had spent 400 years in Egypt, a pagan land, which wasn't just full of idols, but it was also full of what you might call today fake news. And what I mean by that is like Egypt, like every other pagan nation in its day, Egypt had its own myths and its own stories and legends about how the world had come into being and which gods were the gods that you should worship. And that was the culture, that was the the spiritual atmosphere, if you like, in which the Israelites had lived for centuries. All these stories about Egyptian gods and Egyptian versions of where the world had come from and what had happened in the past. And so God, through Moses and by the power of his Holy Spirit, gives his people the book of Genesis. And he teaches them their history. And Genesis provides us with the truth about who God is and what he has done and where we as a human race came from. And in Genesis chapter 6, Moses is going to tell us about one of the most important world-changing events that has ever taken place in all history. It's an event, again, that every ancient civilization, or virtually every ancient civilization in the world, has some memory of and some version of. If you were to study Greek or Chinese or Babylonian ancient history uh, and, and sort of their stories and their myths, they all refer to this event And they have different versions of this event. But in the Bible, we have the true version, the true story of this event. It's the story, of course, of the flood. The devastating judgment that God visited upon this planet several thousand years ago. And even in our own days, in the days of so-called rational and atheistic in some cases, in some cases, atheistic scientific endeavor, we have our own mythical versions of the flood it's just that we don't refer to it as the flood we refer to it as millions if not billions of years of things like asteroids hitting the earth and uh, and evolution and so on the bible gives us the true story the story of how god made the world and then judged the world and destroyed the world and made it again through the flood but before moses tells us about the flood he takes time to answer the question How did it come to this? How did we get to the point where God had to send this devastating flood on the earth? Why did that have to happen? 
And that's the question that Moses is answering for us here in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Before we get into the, the story of the flood proper, we have the explanation of why the flood came. And so two main points this morning. First of all, uh, the pattern of man's sin. The pattern of man's sin. Uh, You remember a few weeks ago when we were last in Genesis, we looked at at Genesis chapter 5. We we looked at it over two sermons, in fact. And we saw how there was this godly line of descendants through Seth. uh, And these men listed in in Genesis 5, we believe, were godly men. Men who had a, a close relationship with God. And we saw that particularly in Enoch. You remember Enoch walked with God and then God simply took him on to heaven afterwards. And this was the godly line of, of believers. This was, uh, th- th- these were the people who called upon the name of the Lord, you remember, in contrast to the line of Cain. And Cain's descendants did not call on God. They were not godly men. But look at chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now a question arises here as to uh, who is it exactly that Moses is talking about when he says the sons of God? Uh, Who are these sons of God that married the daughters of man? And the first suggestion is that the sons of God were angels or some kind of angel-like creatures who came down to the earth and entered into sexual relations with human women. Most people who hold to this interpretation suggest that the Nephilim, who are mentioned there in verse 4, the Nephilim were the offspring of these uh, sexual unions, these sinful sexual unions, that the Nephilim were sort of half-human half-angelic, super-type creatures uh, who came as a result of these unholy unions. And people who hold to that, and and there are quite a few writers I came across who do, uh, but they they point out that several other times in the Bible, that phrase, sons of God, is a description of heavenly beings or angels. Job chapter 1 verse 6, for example, describes a scene that we rarely see elsewhere in the Bible, says there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So clearly in that passage the sons of God are not human beings because Satan was one of them and Satan we know was an angel originally. So the sons of God there are spiritual beings who were able to come into the spiritual presence of God. Psalm 29 verse 1 also says ascribe to the Lord O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Uh, And the the word there for heavenly beings could also be translated sons of God. So that's the, the first interpretation that Moses here is talking about some kind of angelic creatures who somehow entered into sexual unions with human beings and produced almost this superhuman offspring, the Nephilim. The second interpretation, and it's the one that I'm going to suggest, I'm going to commend to you this morning, uh, is that the sons of God here are in fact members of the family of Seth. In other words, members of what at that time was the visible church. These were people born into this family line who did initially at least 
call upon the name of the Lord. The problem is that these sons of God, these sons of Seth, they married women from outside the church, to put it in our language. They married some of the daughters of Cain, unbelievers. And as a result, they fell into sin and they fell away from God. And there are several reasons why I think it's better to understand the sons of God here as meaning children born into the line of Seth. First of all, while sons of God does refer to angels on some occasions, as we've seen, on more often it refers to God's people. Deuteronomy 14 verse 1, God says to the Israelites through Moses, You are the sons of the Lord your God. And of course we see this language in the New Testament as well. 1 John 3 verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children or sons of God. So yes, it can sometimes refer to angels, but more often than not, it refers to uh, the outward, the visible church, God's professing people, sons of God. As well as that, quite simply, angels do not procreate. Those who want to see some kind of strange union of heavenly creatures with human beings here, they ignore the fact that angels are spiritual beings. They don't have bodies the way we have bodies and therefore they can't enter into physical relationships. Remember when Jesus was asked a question about human marriage in the resurrection. Jesus said in Matthew 22 verse 30, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels in heaven. So Jesus was saying there that resurrected human beings won't get married. Just like angels don't get married, he was saying. And therefore, they don't experience sexual union. So if angels don't even marry one another, how could they possibly marry human beings? It doesn't really make sense. But most importantly, remember the whole point of this passage I said at the beginning. Verses 1 to 8 here. It's here to explain to us why the flood came. And the flood did not have any impact upon angels. Why would God destroy human beings on earth for something that angels really were the ones they were responsible for? God destroyed the earth because of what human beings did, because of how bad human sin got. And that's what the passage is really telling us all about. It's telling us, friends, about the pattern that sin follows, the pattern of human sin, which just repeats and repeats and repeats and gets worse and worse and worse. Just look at the language of verse 2 and think about where you might have heard this language before. Genesis 6 verse 2. The sons of God saw <coughs> that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Notice the words. They saw, it was attractive, they took what does that remind us of? Genesis 3 verse 6. When the woman, when Eve saw that the tree was good or attractive, a delight to the eyes, she took of its fruit and ate. And so here, friends, quite deliberately, once again, we have echoes of Eden. Here's the pattern of sin being repeated. 
As I've said, the line of Seth had godly men in it, as we considered a few weeks ago, particularly Enoch and Methuselah and men like that. And these were the, uh, but these, these uh, we were also told in chapter 5 that the sons of Seth had other sons and daughters, as well as the ones listed there in chapter 5, there were other sons and daughters. And over time, these other sons and daughters were attracted to the physical beauty of the children of Cain. And it's described in such a way as to leave us in no doubt that like the fall, this was sinful. The sons of God, those who were born into believing households, should not have married those from unbelieving households. And these marriages do not lead to unbelievers joining believers, joining the church, if we put it in that way. Rather, the opposite happened. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see how specific it gets, that God sees the hearts of men and women, and their sin just gets worse and worse. These were unholy unions. And this perhaps explains one of the reasons why unholy marriages were so strongly condemned and were to be avoided at all costs in the future. You think of Abraham, for example, when he has to find a wife for his son Isaac. Genesis 24 tells us that Abraham sent his servant on a long, exhausting journey all the way back to Abraham's own family circle to get a wife for Isaac rather than let him marry a pagan. And all through the Old Testament, from the days of Moses to the days of Nehemiah, when God's people intermarry with pagans, friends, the results are disastrous and the judgment from God is swift. And of course, this is a principle that we still apply in the church today. Second uh, Corinthians 6 verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The Christian who knowingly, intentionally uh, marries a non-Christian is inviting disaster. How will they raise their children? Who gets to teach the children their beliefs? How can the two be one in every way? And so... This is a, a, a principle, as we see here in Genesis, that goes all the way back to the beginning. Some Christians get married to non-Christians because they think there couldn't be anything worse than not being married. Well, there is something worse than not being married, is to, be, uh, to get married in a way that dishonors God. And of course, it's very different if one person becomes a Christian afterwards and the other person is still not a Christian, and the Bible speaks to that as well and encourages uh, a Christian spouse to, uh, to stay with their non-Christian spouse, to pray for them, to set a good example to them, and to pray that they too come to know the Lord. What we're talking about here is intentionally going away from the pattern God has laid out. And boys and girls, some of you, your very young marriage probably seems a long, long way off. And it is a long way off. But let me say today that uh, the, the Bible is very clear about who you should and should not marry. If you're a Christian, you should only be marrying another Christian. Christian singleness is God glorifying. 
If that's what God calls us to be, if he calls us to remain single all our days, we can do that in a way that glorifies him. Christian intermarriage can never be God-glorifying. Christian intermarriage with the world can never be God-glorifying. And notice in this passage, friends, the subtlety of sin. The subtlety of sin. Satan does the same thing here as he did with Eve in the garden. He puts something attractive in front of the sons of God. The women that they married were told were physically beautiful. The sons of God wanted them. They were attracted to them physically. Without thinking about the spiritual side of things. And so it is for us today, day by day, in the temptations we face. Something that is in some way attractive is put in front of us. And Satan wants us to think only about the attraction of it and not think about the implications of it. Maybe it's the temptation of a beautiful woman on a screen. A man looks at her and he wants her and he thinks, who will see? Who will be hurt? God will see. And you will hurt yourself and your wife if you're married because of the brain-altering, expectation-warping, empty end result of pornography. Or we see a tax return form to be filled out and you see an attractive option on the screen, enter these numbers and this will be the result. A bit less to pay, a bit more money saved. Who will see? Who will be hurt? God will see. His law will be broken. His anger aroused. Boys and girls, you're sitting doing a test in school. You're struggling with one or two of the questions. And the person sitting beside you is sitting in such a way you can see their answers. And that's attractive. And you think, I could just write it down as well. Who, Who will see? Who will be hurt? God will see. His law will be broken. His anger aroused. And so in subtle and in quick temptations, friends, Satan puts attractive things in front of the sons of God. Popularity, compromise in morals or in worship or in work, mixing of the sacred and the secular. James chapter 1 verse 14 so clearly describes this pattern of sin. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. Are there sins that we excuse? Are there attractive people or pleasures or pursuits that we simply see and take and indulge in before we even think about it? The flood came, friends, because the sons of God saw and they took. It's the same pattern of sin as as has been seen uh, since the very beginning. It's the same pattern of sin that followed with Eve. It's the same pattern that has followed ever since. We need to guard against it, friends. We need to be praying each and every day, just as Jesus taught us to pray. Deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. Help me to go into the day ready for these things and not taken off guard, not taken by surprise when these things come our way. The pattern that sin follows. But then secondly, uh, we see today the surprise of God's grace. The surprise of God's grace. And I say surprise because as we read the description of the sin of mankind, 
we think, well, you can understand. We would have understood if that was just the end of it. If human history had been brought to an end right there and then. It says in verse 4, uh, or, or sorry, in verse 5, the, God saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And you think, well, is that not just it then? Is that the end of everything? But no, wonderfully, surprisingly, perhaps, God's grace enters in. And there's various ways in which we see God's grace here in this passage. First of all, notice God gracious in in the patience he displays. We see God's grace in the patience that he displays. Look at verse 3. This is God's reaction to these sinful marriages. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now some people have asked, does this mean that God is never going to allow any human being to live for more than a hundred and twenty years from that point onwards? Or does it refer to the fact that the flood came one hundred and twenty years after God spoke those words? Well, certainly it's true that very few people after this did live for more than 120 years. Uh, The patriarchs, Moses, Joshua, one or two others are mentioned in Scripture who lived more than 120 years. Uh, The oldest person alive on the planet right now is a Japanese lady called Kane Tanaka. She is 119 years and 112 days old, so she's almost made it. Uh, But actually, the point of this verse is not to say that no one will make it past the age of 120. Instead, this is God declaring that 120 years from now, from the time he said these words, he will destroy the world. Friends, God gave human beings another 120 years. He gave mankind another 120 years in which to repent of their sin. There were plenty of witnesses in these, in these days as to the fact that people were to call upon the name of the Lord. The sons of Seth, Methuselah, died the year the flood came. He was alive right up till the flood came. Noah uh, was, was a witness, as we'll think more about this evening and in the weeks ahead. God gave them a preacher in Noah. He gave them the most striking and unforgettable visual aid imaginable. A ship or a boat being built in the desert. To impress upon people that they must repent. The judgment is coming. Friends, God is patient. God is patient. Sometimes Christians complain, don't we? The world's such a mess. I just wish God would end it all. Take us to heaven. Haven't we just had enough? Don't we get tired of wars and sickness and suffering and injustice? Well, we do, but Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, (coughs) but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not being slow, Peter says. He is being patient. Aren't you glad, Christian, that God was patient with you? Aren't we glad that he didn't end it all before you and I got a chance to repent? God would have been within his rights to end it all in an instant long before the flood. He could have sent us straight to hell long ago for all of our sin. 
but he is gracious and he is patient. God gracious in the patience he displays, but also God gracious despite the grief in his heart. God gracious despite the grief in his heart. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Nephilim, Moses is telling us here, were one particularly powerful tribe of human beings. The the translation in the ESV in verse 4 perhaps makes it sound as if they were quite impressive or virtuous or heroic. Uh, The ESV describes them as men of renown. But actually, friends, the original language stresses that these were violent, tyrannical men. These were particularly dangerous, sinful men. Look at the very next verse, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so we really don't have to... We don't have to speculate about the Nephilim. Get into all these strange ideas about them being almost superhuman. Verse 5 tells us what they were like. God saw that they they were just growing in wickedness. One commentator says, The author of Genesis, by connecting the Nephilim to the wickedness of the times and their ensuing judgment, shows that they were altogether mortal, not at all superhuman, and subject to the judgment of God. <coughs> goes on to say, the biblical author not only set the record straight about the Nephilim, but also used it as testimony condemning the wicked generation which deserved the cataclysmic flood to follow. There's no great mystery about what was going on in the earth in these days, friends. The Nephilim and everyone else, they were getting increasingly violent and wicked and sinful. To the point where, look at verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, for I am sorry that I have made them. Very striking language there, friends, to describe the, the disposition of God towards human beings. The Bible does this sometimes. It describes God in language that we can understand. God, of course, does not have regrets in the way that we have regrets. God has never found himself in a position where, oh, I didn't think things would go like that. I better come up with another plan to deal with the way things have turned out. That's not what the Bible is saying here. But what it is doing, friends, is is describing God in a way that we can understand. To describe the depth of sorrow and anger and hatred for sin that God has. And so again, friends, how gracious was God? How patient was he to to put up with this for another 120 years? Think of the time you were most badly hurt or made most angry by the actions of someone else. Boys and girls, maybe you've discovered something that a friend at school or a brother or sister has done and you become so angry. Maybe you run straight into their room and you want to get them back immediately. You want to hurt them as badly as they've hurt you. And adults in their own ways can find, can find ways of doing the same thing. God did not respond like that here. 
as, as sorry as God was, as grieved in his heart as he was over the state of sin, he was patient. He gave another 120 years before he sent the flood. And in that time, lastly for today, friends, notice that God was gracious in the saving and sending of his servant. God was also gracious in the saving and sending of his servant. The passage ends on a bit of a bombshell. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Reading all about this sin, this increasing wickedness in the world, and you think, well, everyone's going to be wiped out. And then all of a sudden it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Just notice what Noah's father, Lamech, had said about him when he was born. Chapter 5, verse 29. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That's a statement of faith from Lamech, friends, that the serpent crusher promised to Eve is still to come. Then in a cursed world, God can still provide a rescuer, a deliverer, and Lamech hopes that it might be his son, Noah. And of course, in a sense, that was what Noah would be. Second Peter 2 verse 5 describes Noah as a herald of righteousness, a preacher. Noah was not only saved by God's grace, he was sent by God to be a preacher to the world around him. For a hundred years or more, as he built his ark, Noah was preaching to people, urging them to repent. And so Noah, friends, embodied the grace, the mercy, the patience of God in a world deserving of judgment, God provided undeserved grace in the form of Noah and his ark. And here's the really important thing I want you to grasp about, about Noah today. And that is, friends, that Noah needed God's grace too. Noah needed God's grace too. Boys and girls, I know many of you, you mentioned when we had the arrows a few weeks ago, there's two or, three, two or three of you, I think, said that the story of Noah and the flood is your favorite story. So I hope you'll enjoy the next few weeks. But boys and girls, when people tell the story of Noah, they often get it wrong. You, oftentimes, the story of Noah is told in this sort of way. Everyone in the world was bad. Only Noah was good. And because Noah was good, God saved him in the ark. Is that how it was? No. Look what it says, and this is the verse on the sheet for the boys and girls today. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Another word there for favor is grace. And grace means getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. It's if you've been misbehaving all weekend... And mum or dad give you the Easter egg anyway. That's grace. Grace is getting what you have done nothing to, to earn or deserve. Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Noah, it says, having been warned by God, so God came to Noah first. Noah did not go to God first and say, God, here are all my good works. 
Here's all the things that I've done that all these other wicked people haven't done. Here's all these things that I haven't done that all the people around about me have been doing. God came to Noah first. And God graciously warned Noah. And God graciously worked in Noah's heart. The heart of a man who was a sinner just like everybody else. God by his spirit changed Noah so that he believed the word of God by faith. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, Paul says, so that no one may boast. And what's true of believers today in the New Testament era was true of believers in the Old Testament as well, saved by the grace of God. Now, of course, Noah lived a righteous life. He didn't live the kind of ongoing sinful lifestyle of the Nephilim or anyone else. Noah obeyed God. He built the ark. But friends, his obedience was the evidence of God's grace in his life, as it is in our lives as Christians as well. Noah's righteousness, his righteous living, was the result of God's love for him. It was not what earned him God's love. It was the result of God's love for him, not what earned him God's love. John Calvin says, Certainly Noah lived a holy and upright life which commended itself to God, but he says such integrity came from the preventing grace of God. The preventing grace of God. What does he mean by that? Well, do you know how people sometimes say today, There but for the grace of God go I. In other words, if God hadn't saved me, I could be living just like anyone else out in the world. Not even with a thought in my mind this morning of going to worship, without any desire to read God's word, enslaved to an addiction, or enslaved to to work, or, or living for some other futile cause. There but for the grace of God go I, and it was the same for Noah. By God's grace alone, he wasn't like the Nephilim, or anyone else in the world at that time. And so friends, we see here God's grace, his grace despite the grief in his own heart, his grace in being patient with the world, his grace in choosing and sending Noah. Noah was a herald of righteousness. And friends, God has been even more gracious and patient with our world today. He has sent one to us even greater than Noah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus not only preached about God's righteousness, he himself was and is the righteousness of God. And the message that any preacher today preaches is the same message that Noah preached. God is gracious, but his judgment is coming. And so repent and believe and be saved. Maybe you today, either here in the building or listening online, you need to repent and believe today. Perhaps God's verdict on the world at large in Noah's day is the same verdict he would make about you if he was to judge you right now. Every intention of the thoughts of your heart is only evil continually. You have no love for God in your heart whatsoever. And you could protest and you could think, well, I'm not hurting anyone or I don't bully anyone or threaten anyone. I don't really lie in any big way or steal in any big way. I, I'm no Vladimir Putin. 
Well, that's setting the bar rather low, is it not? You know, that you're not a war criminal. There's not too many war criminals in the world. You might think, well, I'm not some crooked politician or some scandalous celebrity. But you know the wickedness of your own thoughts. You know the selfishness of your motives. You know the hatred, the bitterness, the lust you have in your heart. And you know that God sees your heart today as he saw the hearts of each one in Noah's day. And if he was to judge you based on what he sees in your heart today, you would be sentenced to eternal punishment in hell. Dear friend, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That was Noah's message. That's our message still today. God is being patient to you at this very moment. He's giving you another opportunity to hear this good news. Take it. Repent. Believe. Be saved. And Christian, here's the encouraging truth for us today. God will preserve his church. There's not a lot of good news in these verses we've just read. But there is, this, there is some good news as we've just considered. And there is further good news when you consider that we learn here that God will preserve his church no matter how small his church may become. The church in Noah's day shrank down to just Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. But the church still survived. And we may live in times of compromise. We may feel ourselves to be in the tiniest of minorities. But we must obey God rather than men. We must be faithful to his word rather than trying to impress men. We, we look on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we must urge the world around us to, be, to get ready for his judgment and his return. By receiving his grace before it's too late. And so if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Amen.